This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Testing one, two, three. My name is Vanya Arslanian, and I'm here to party. back at you. How are you doing? Oh, Avern, I'm doing pretty good. Better than last week, but, oh, uh, good. you know, I'm a free woman. I've got, actually, I, I think I'm a lockdown woman because now I have both of the children in my house with me all the time, but it's oh, okay. <laughs> so you got full-time, like, summer mom duty. Mm, hmm mm. It's great. <laughs> it's great. I know, it looks like I'm drinking a beer. I'm not. It's the hop... It's the hop water. Oh, I love that stuff so Me much. Too. Hoppy refresher. Sponsor Even if you don't us, like please. beer, I know. Please sponsor us. I, <laughs> it's not. It, there's no alcohol in it, but it ta- it has like a like a it, it has like an essence of of hops. It's like it's an elderflower nice. soda. Is what how I would describe the taste. It's very delicious. Without sweetness, though. Yeah. Yeah. Not sweet at all. I'm drinking a Coca-Cola Zero. I another just did that another one you. that should maybe sponsor us. <laughs> I know. God, wouldn't that be the greatest? Just kidding. Um, any roms or any crimes happened to you this week? Well, I I was like racking my brain and I remembered that a week ago. So do you have the Citizen app? You know, I did and then I took it off because it scared me. Mm, there you go. Well, all the time. <laughs> yeah, right. It's that's fair. It's I probably should just disable the notifications. Wait, but tell all the people the time, what it is, though. Tell oh, the so Citizen app is basically basically an app that alerts you to like police activity in your nearby proximity. Yeah. So sometimes I, I think that's helpful. Like exactly. if I find out 10 minutes before I'm leaving for work that there's been a car accident on my route that I take, you know, then I'll go another way, that kind of stuff. But I think it was Tuesday of last week and I was sitting here and all the time I get notifications like uh, reports of gunshots fired. And it always turns out that it was like fireworks because fireworks right. go off all the time. All and so I got an alert that there had been <laughs> Uh, yeah, like all the time, but there had been a gunshot like fired, but that this time it was real. And there was actually like a murder happened, <gasps> like in an area very close to where I live. In fact, right by the park that we take our dog to all the time. And it was, you know, still light outside. It was like 7 PM. And I was like, Oh my God. Oh no. Um, so I guess in a weird way, I mean, obviously I, I have nothing personally to do with what happened and but there was a crime that was committed, you know, like very, very close to, to where we live. Um, any more details like, Holy. about it? Or? I kind of looked into it. I think it might've been gang related. Um, oh. They they never released like any more information other than there was a, a fatality and that the two that two people ran away afterwards. Damn. So um, I had a crime. I'm trying to think if there was anything romantic that happened this week. I feel like I I worked a lot. Yeah. You know what I love about the rom thing that is trying to find it is I definitely need to like I think I need to like make more romance in my life. I know, right? I realize that I'm like, oh, I have to start cultivating romance exactly. if I want to have something to tell you guys. So I failed at cultivating no, romance. Because last time my husband did all that. That no was prompting. very cool. Interesting. No. Okay, so I challenge you and I challenge myself to next week. My rom was just, um, you know, the feeling and I never, here's the thing, because we have kids and it's like, everything's been so hectic, we never get to have the actual moments that you would probably get to have if you were not, if you didn't have children in your mom in your house and all the time or sleeping in your bed with you. Um, but you know, it's that wonderful feeling when it's summer mm-hmm. and you've been at a pool all day and you know, you get back home and you're like showering and you've got little sunburn kisses and you're just sort of like 
looking at each other and just thinking it would be a really fun time to have some some party party. But like, because there's some, some, it's even the smell of summer on your skin that just, it's an aphrodisiac for me. So not a true rom. A feeling, a feeling of rom. I like it. I like it. And then my crime is, uh, well, I kind of have two. One's not real and the other one's not real. Whatever. I'm going to go to the end. But like my daughter, she did it. It was an accident. But so anyone out there who listens, I'm, I, I, I assume maybe the majority of people who listen to us probably wear some form of makeup. Not necessary. Do not have to wear makeup. What'd she do to your makeup? What'd she do? (laughs) I have, I bought, I finally found a color that's really good for my skin. It's really expensive. And she accidentally broke it. Like I got it a day before she broke it. And I'm like, I have to kind of save up for it now. I'm pissed. Right? Oh, bummer. I was trying not to be upset, but it also like got on the carpet in the, in the closet and on two of my shoes. And that shit doesn't come out. It's like oil based or what maybe i don't know so this was a crime against your face and your closet (laughs) (laughs) so sad and then the other thing and this is just like kind of i get kind of freaked out at night sometimes i mean like i'm a typical person where i'm a little afraid of the dark i guess and last night my dog i just feel like the world is going crazy i feel like Mm -hmm. everyone's in a hyper state of like anger and anxiety i don't really understand what's going on but my dog wouldn't stop whining last night and i'm like what the hell is going on like I went to a crazy place where I'm did like... Did you figure it out? No, I never did. I just... You know, I he usually loves his little crate and he sleeps in it. I just let him out of the crate and let him roam the downstairs last night. And that's what happened. But yeah, I mean, I went to a crazy place because you know how like dogs can sense like earthquakes or like a fire or... Because we live in LA and I'm just like, Jesus Christ. Anyways, that's mine. It was unsettling i had an unsettled mm. night last oh, I'm night i'm so sorry yeah that would be like creepy when you're like why are you still crying like what's what's up what's down and there? he wanted me to really like snuggle him i'm like did i not snuggle you enough to it so i t- really today i walked him snuggled him i've and i maybe i've maybe i'm i don't know we've, we've imprinted on each other i'm not sure yeah. what's happened but anyways that's that Peanut. um are you ready i'm ready i'm excited i'm excited to talk about this new movie i'm so excited about this new movie it may not be everyone's cup of tea but it is my cup of tea and it so it's a new movie on hulu it's a new rom-com called fire island mm-hmm. it's so I'm just going to say it. I loved every second of it. And I was texting a friend and he's like, he's like, I think you like gay people more than I do. And he's gay. And I'm like, you're you're a bitch. And I love you so much. But I guess maybe I do. Maybe I'm just like, I'm sympathetic. I also just like a lot of my really close friends are uh, of the LGBTQ plus a community. I just freaking love them. And I love, I love a rom-com about it. And this one has, because you know I'm a little basic. I love some raunchy, fun humor. It's mm-hmm. got a little bit of that in there. Yes. And to top it off, it's about Fire Island, where I am maybe a little sheepish to say that I've been a lot as a straight uh, female, but I've always been with my best friends. And I I never hope, I never hope I'm an annoying, because they do talk about it in this movie a little bit, like when women, when straight women come, just for a second, like it's, it's a place for gay people to go over the freaking past 50 years to be safe and party and have fun mm-hmm. in the summer. And yes, there are, there is a section, it's called like ocean something that's like, not just, it's like families and, but it, but the point is, is I hope I never offended anyone. I never felt like I had when I went, but I'm I, sure you were just a delightful addition to the party. For me, I, I've, I have also many, uh, friends and also a sibling who is gay and has spent a lot of time on Fire Island. Mm. And I've heard so many stories over the years. And I always I mean, I love, you know, I love a good juicy fun party story. And I think part of me was like, they're exaggerating. Like, there's no way it's that crazy. And then I see this movie and to hear the names of the parties, like the tea dance and the underwear party and all the things I've been hearing about for, you know, over a decade of being a grown up and having friends who go out there in the summer, it was so fun to be like, oh shit, they were not lying. That That's a real party. It really is a real party. I've definitely been to tea a bunch all over the place. I've been to tea in Provincetown. And nice. And I also just thought the movie was so, I, I loved the dynamic of like the friendships. Me too, Evren. Yes. I loved the absolutely like unique, specific types of 
characters that these people were playing that were so specific and it made them feel so very real. And yet it was also very heightened because, you know, it is a movie and there are certain aspects to certain characters that are clearly meant to be like comic, you know, comedic value. Like when we're with our friends, we are like, I know my goal is to make my friend piss their pants with humor. So like, in a way, it's almost not out of the ordinary with some of the character. Because, you know, I feel like there's so many good scenes. In fact, I just posted one of the scenes where they're playing. They're playing like a simple game. That's like one of the best ones. Yeah. Heads up. (laughs) They're playing heads up. And it's it's Marissa Tomei. And they keep doing the line from uh, My Cousin Vinny. I love it so... That scene is so good. So I guess I'll just... Okay. I'm having having an internal battle because if you haven't seen this movie, I think you should watch this movie. If you don't want to see this movie and I will give you a good um, overview, I'm going to try to leave you know, some things out. So it's a really joyful watch for you because it was for me. So I don't want to take away yeah, your joy. Yeah, so much fun. I want to take away anybody's joy. So it's a new rom-com. Obviously, we talked about it. It's on Hulu. So if you got Hulu, you can just you watch it up for free. Just stream that shit up right away. Get on the boat! Stupid bitch Noah every year. Oh, I made it, didn't I? This week is sacred. We're going to Fire Island. And this is why straight people hate us. And also, heteronormativity, Judeo-Christian pathology, anal. For whatever reason, call it magic, time sort of works differently here. Finally, my girls have arrived! And that is our makeshift little family. We all met 10 years ago working at the same cursed brunch spot. Bottomless mimosas, bitches! <laughs> oh, Jackie Chan, hey, you got another refill here, bud? I can't believe you talked me into this again. I come here, I just feel terminally alone. Oh, are you all right? It's fine. It happens all the time. Do you want some whiskey? It would help with your knees. You can trust me, I'm a doctor. Do they have a house on the beach? Well, we can't go over there. We are literal trash. Guys, excuse me? I think you may have the wrong house. Have you seen the way they're drinking? They're clearly using us for free liquor. Well, promise me you'll try to have a good time. Do not let these people think that they are better than us, because at the end of the day... Never mind. Okay, guys like that are ruining this island. Play harsh, Ty. I have never met somebody who has made it so clear that they think they're so superior than everybody else. I don't think I'm better than you. You think that if you're vulnerable for just one second that it's all gonna come crashing down. All you guys, you're like, all I have. We're family. That means something to me. What are we gonna like, hug and wrap this up? How does this end? Why don't we just get a little f***ed up and dance? The defense is wrong! My biological clock is ticking like this! Penelope Cruz? Oh, oh, who is this? So the internet tells us that this movie is about a group of queer best friends who gather in the Fire Island Pines for their annual week of love and laughter. But a sudden change of events jeopardizes their summer in gay paradise, and in turn their bonds as a chosen family are pushed to the limit. It's a nice, really bright overview. And I think like more broadly, the cre- the person who wrote this film has been very open about the fact that this is straight up like a retelling of Pride and Prejudice. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We get to that. And which I love that. His, so his name is Joel Kim Booster. He's the writer. He's awesome. He also plays the lead ro- role of Noah in mm-hmm. which the movie opens. Oh, and by the way, if you just go into the Reddit, people get all pissed. It's like, it's not that close to Pride and Prejudice. But guess what? It is it's perfectly done, guys. I It is. It's perfectly done. And I just want to say to you, Mike, watch this movie. I know you don't want to watch do it, it, but Mike, watch do it. it. It's so fun. It's so fun. <laughs> Listen, just do it. Do it for a karaoke scene alone. Thank you. Yes. Oh, my God. Yes. Um, I'm just going to say there are things that are going to annoy you, but mostly I think you're going to love it. Okay. I'm just saying, and I love you so much. And you're my best friend. I love you so much. Okay. Here we go. <laughs> So the film opens with Noah. He's waking up after a one night stand. We kind of find out that he's not a boyfriend guy. He's a one night stand kind of guy. And he's an adorable, like ripped, you know, but kind of petite ripped dude. He find, Anyways, he finds a bunch of unanswered texts and calls from his best friend group. And they're about to take off their annual holiday weekend to the Fire Island Noah barely makes it by saying, you know, he's like rushing and he says, I took an Uber (laughs) from Bushwick, which is like 
they were like, is that $300? I mean, at this point, if it was post-COVID, it was probably like $600. But like, no one takes the Uber usually unless you're kind of rich and that's okay. Good for you. I'll say say that. Um, So he joins everybody. um, And these are his friends. These are, as they say, their chosen family, which in New York, you kind of have because a lot of people aren't necessarily from there. And so... You know, oftentimes you don't get away from home. Anyways, I'm just saying. The, yeah, they, and I loved it. They all met working yes, like working the brunch, brunch shift at a restaurant in Williamsburg. And as somebody who worked so many brunch shifts. Oh, my God. In my time in New York City, you do make lifelong friends. One more reason to watch this movie, Mike. Um, yes, I agree. And I was going to ask you, like, the, the bonds you make working as a server. Yeah, like, shout out to my brunch bestie, Shane, who is still one absolutely. of my closest friends to this day. And I owe you a call. That's right. And your <laughs> husband, for God's sake. Oh, yeah, and I met my husband working, not necessarily brunch, but yeah, yeah. In, in that industry. Um, yeah. Although, yeah, we did work brunch a couple times together. And yeah, you do. You make such tight friendships working in that industry I because also brunch is the too. worst. It is the worst. And people, why are you so mean? Stop being so mean. I know you're so hungry. I feel like people are hungry and hungover. So they're just like extra mean. And then they're also getting drunk while oh. being hungry and hungover by getting bottomless mimosas. And, and you're like, everybody just needs to calm the F down. They kind of stopped. When I first moved out to New York in early 2004, it was bottomless m- brunch mimosa time all over the place. In fact, it, it was dangerous even for me as a young 20 year old something. I was like let's go shopping i'm drunk bad idea um, <laughs> but yes i agree they don't really do it as much but you know so but they all met yes they all met and then but noah and howie who is played by bo and yang who remember guys bo and yang's on snl and i love him so much he's definitely one of my favorite characters he's one of the funniest people he's playing more of a straight character a gay straight character in this Movie. The straight man, yeah, like the, the less, like the not as overtly yeah. comedic. Yes, Which, God, he's so good in SNL. On SNL, anyways, they're closer. They're like more bestie friends because they also they're just better friends in general. But they have they're both Asian and they've had to deal with like people just being racist assholes and just why? What is wrong with people? Uh, there's that. That's a whole other podcast. Okay, so they all met, right? So Noah. So they. So. Noah is a nerd turned hottie, avoiding real relationships. And Howie is still a nerd, but looking for true love slash vanilla sex, which they talk about a lot. (laughs) Anyways, so the gang arrives at Fire Island and they take the long walk from the ferry to the house they're staying at where they meet their mother figure, Erin, played by Margaret Cho, of course. Mm -hmm. Um, She also was a brunch career server. That's where they knew her as well until she won like a bunch of money after eating a piece of glass at a restaurant. And so she, (laughs) she, she buys this fire Island house. Amazing. (laughs) Um, After unpacking Noah and Howie have beers and share a joint outside. And I'm just like, I'm getting all the feels of going on vacation with your friends. I know I I want to go on a vacation. Oh my God. So bad. Um, they talk about sex and how Howie's the only one to never get any on these trips. Um, but the truth is, he he really kind of wants the fairy tale. He Noah makes it his mission. However, he's like, I'm gonna get you laid before I even get any. So that's my mission, and I'm gonna. And he's like, but I don't want any weird sex and nothing. Isn't I want somebody who I just want vanilla, just <laughs> chill. And so the game is afoot. And then Noah's phone gets lodged into the pool. And I love that character. I forget his real name. I think it's Max or something. And he, he's, he's screaming because there's a bug in the house. And he knocks his friend. Anyways, his friend throws Noah gets his uh, phone in the pool. And they put it in rice. Also, things that happen on vacations with your friends. Yep, yeah, all the time. <laughs> um, Aaron admits to the guys that she is broke after this. Uh, so this is the last year they're going to have the house. So every year... For the last, I assume, like 10 years, let's say, they've been going and they've been having these wonderful, fun times. And this is the last year because she said she's like, I'm shit with money. I so that's gotta sell my house. Although part of me was like, you guys can still like rent a house. I was going to say. It doesn't have to be over, over. I mean, I know it's nice to be able to go for free. You know, you got a house on Fire Island, girl. Make that money. I swear to God. I'm like, I am problem solving over. If they if I was one of their friends, I would have helped. Okay, so. But they're still all determined to make this the best last, whatever. So, and then they go to tea where the group, Mm -hmm. they're all getting ready and they're all like doing push-ups and getting, you know, getting their body all jacked up before. And like I said, Noah is determined to get Howie laid. So a cute dude is checking him out and Noah basically pushes him down the stairs like... (laughs) 
like Picard and he scrapes <laughs> his knee. But wait, Avrin, the cute boy stops and it's okay because he's a doctor. Oh, that's right. And then <laughs> Margaret shows yeah. Aaron is like, ah! a doctor yeah <laughs> she's like the perfect mother she's like and he's oh so cute he this really boy is and Char- his name charlie his name's charlie and they're on their way to watch the sunset which is a thing by the way it's a thing on, on fire island and also anytime i was in the hamptons it's because the the sunsets out there are absolutely stunning and i swear to god the writer must have been one of my friends and i didn't know it but we would go and count so there's a scene where the, so so Charlie and one a couple of their friends they're like all like kind of like if they're Banana Republic uh, you know Howie and if Noah's these gay friends is are the Bennett Forever Twenty One there you go <laughs> if these friends are the Bennetts and this other group of boys that Charlie is part of is like the Darcy crowd exactly so they're all being <laughs> we're so put together with our nice outfits um not banana republic cuz that's not even that nice but you i mean you get what we're saying here so but the other gang is like they're counting down they're like 10 9 8 as the sun goes down until it disappears and then they like scream and and clap for the sun and i we did that every single day we were there so maybe it's just that's a thing fun. everybody maybe does maybe it really is a thing that's i don't know cool. but we i was like i was feeling all the feels um so let's see then howie and charlie have a nice moment so Charlie invites the guys to a party at their house that he and his friends are having later that night. The group shows up for the party, which is a super nice, rich party compared to their humbling, humble dwellings. Some of the boys act crazy and drink too much and bring cheese in the hot tub. They're just like super. They're really excited to be at this party. (laughs) Meanwhile, Noah overhears his hate crush, which is, um, what's his name? Will. Thank you. Will. That's the that's Charlie's friend, and Will is like a real stoic, sweet, good-looking dude. But he overhears him talking shit, kind of shit about them. Yeah, and how he ends he's up, legit talking shit. He's yeah. like, they only came here to drink our like top shelf booze. Yeah, and, there's a lot of that. Yeah, I'm like, like he's like actively saying like they're poor trash, which is really <laughs> rude. Will really, really rude. Yeah, and so he doesn't know that he's listening, but Noah heard it all, and Noah's like, well, fuck you guys, we're leaving. But Howie wants to stay, and the whole goal is for Howie to get some boop, 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 boop. So he stays the night, um, and he doesn't show up the next day. So Noah's happy, but then there's a hilarious scene where they're talking about, like, what if he got murdered? And right. the other guy's like, well, you know, it's more you're more likely to get murdered in your own home. And somebody else is like, and that's why I don't throw any parties. So, um, <laughs> but Noah, with no phone, has to walk back to the house. And by the way, I feel like they would definitely be riding bikes there because there are pathways and pathways of wooden pathways everywhere. It's just like a super hike getting around. So every house has um, bikes. Just a little FYI, if you're ever to go mm, out to Fire Island, good to know. get a house with bikes. Um no, Noah sees his hate crush Charlie at the house and it gets tense and then sexy and then tense again. And they had such good um yeah. chemistry. It's like a it good was one of those scene too. Yeah, it's one of those things too where you can just tell like that even though there's clear animosity and curiosity as well, but there's just like some serious like we want to just put our hands on each other vibes happening. We're like it. I, it was palpable. I and was it like, oh feels it feels like um, Pride and Prejudice. It has that that restraint where you're just like, mm-hmm. rip it off, do yes. it. Uh, <laughs> so it's a bit of a wild ride from here. And I, like I said, I don't want to spoil it all, but just I'm, I'm like, I'm not going to spoil it, but then I have three more pages to read you. I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> I love it. Take the people through it. It doesn't there, make it not fun to watch. No, it's true. It, I think you'll enjoy it. There, there are some real moments here and discussions over stereotypes and prejudices within the LGBTQ plus community, which is really interesting if you're not in that community to understand that, how judgmental it can be and how that even needs to sort of change within. Um, and then also speaking of pride of prejudice, like you said, the overall plot is faithful to the story, but with modern updates and way more underwear parties. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the main characters face, face social scrutiny on Fire Island, not only for being lower class than others vacationing there, but also for their race, appearance, and mannerisms. So just to, just to mention that as well, Howie witnesses Noah, the doctor. Wait, Howie witnesses... Charlie, the doctor. Charlie. I'm like, wait, what? It's not Noah. Noah's the best friend. 
Charlie, the doctor, essentially getting back together with his ex. And also there's a... So I'm, I'm skipping a bit in the middle that you'll really enjoy. There's like some good moments where it feels like maybe Howie is going to have sex, but yeah. also get his like romance, right? And then yeah. they're at the underwear party and all of a sudden we see cute Charlie clearly dancing with somebody else in a very like intimate yeah we know each other and he is informed that it's his ex-boyfriend which is a thing that happens at parties especially ones like that this is not fair but anywho later on so we'll skip over that we also go to the end where there is a messed up non-consensual sex scandal that the friends come together in on to save one of their besties and will remember the lawyer served for the criminal what did he say let's see he says he, he, he like really knows the law, which makes Noah respect him even more. Mm-hmm. Um, because earlier we talked, Noah also reads books here. He doesn't just come to Fire Island for sex because he also reads books. Um, anyways, but jail time will be served for the criminal who tapes his sexual account- encounters and posts them on his fans only page without consent. And Will so coolly explains it's a crime without some sort of written waiver of consent. It means the criteria for it's the it meets the criteria for revenge. Por- re- I can't speak right now. Revenge porn. <laughs> And with the substances involved, you're looking at jail time and a hefty fine and registration as a sex offender. But the guy who was in the video was like, I just don't want any trouble. Just make him take it down. So that's all they really asked him to do. And then they throw his phone in the pool. And then they do. Yeah, because he's a dick. And I just, what I was thinking in this moment was like the things you never think to prepare your children for. What the fuck? You know know what I mean? Like, Like, I'm talking about like consent and all these things, but like make sure someone... You know, you really Isn't have to trust that person. You. Yeah, you <laughs> no. have to really trust the person you're you're boinking, I guess, to know that they're not going to do something awful like that. Um, anywho, anywho, the next day, Howie tells Noah he's leaving because despite his denial, he cannot get over seeing him with his ex. Wait, Howie tells... Why do I keep saying Noah? Howie tells Charlie. Noah, his best friend. Oh, that's right. he can't <laughs> stay on the island because yeah. Charlie does come over and explain right. what's going on. Like, very sweetly. You know, like, that. that's the thing is you do get the sense that they were they were definitely, like... Yeah. Le- like, was a romance real. was a, a blossoming between the two of them. And then he explains that his ex-boyfriend has flown in. Turns out his ex-boyfriend is sick and needs his support. And so he's like, yeah. I, I feel like I it's been so wonderful meeting you, but I have to be there for this person who I loved and love and has been in my life for a super long time. And how he's like, I respect that, but also I'm super sad and I'd like to leave. And so he does. So he takes the next, next ferry out. Noah runs to Charlie's house to reveal his feelings. And the feeling is mutual. And with the help of Noah's friends, the group hijacks a water taxi to catch up with Howie since his boat already left. Charlie manages to catch up to him and express his feelings to Howie, leading them to kiss again. In the end, the group goes to watch the sunset again. Noah and Will dance together and finally kiss. The friends run over to cheer them on. All in all, this, I I think, I feel like, wait, it's coming up. Okay, I'm like, I miss one of my favorite things. All in all, this rom-com delivers. It has wonderful romantic moments, and there are so many funny nuggets of comedy gold, including only the one and only of my favorite moments when Noah gets Howie to dance at the drag show. Where, by the way, Peppermint is the drag queen who I lived in the same building with. I wouldn't say we're friends, but I saw her every day for five years, so maybe not every day, but yeah, we lived in the same building. That's cool. She's amazing. Um, His robotic stiff dance moves solidify their attraction and oh god the karaoke moment too that's later on speak to me in song and dance that's all you need seriously yep, yep, yep. I just that's all. <laughs> you had me at harmonizing backup singers oh hell you had me at that title fire island you guys <laughs> so many good memories there for me and so many good moments to talk about you have to see this movie and I also have to say the soundtrack is amazing Awesome. Excellent, excellent coverage. Yes, I could not agree more. Watch this movie. Love this movie. It's just, it's such a love letter, not only to, you know, the classic story of Pride and Prejudice and to just rom-coms in general, but to friendship yes. and yes. and your chosen family. And it was so much fun watching. I like, I was smiling like, a, like my too. face hurt at how much I was smiling by the end of the movie. So, so good. So thank you for for suggesting this and for making me watch it the second it came out. I mean, I probably (laughs) would have watched it, but I'm I'm so grateful to be like, I'm on this train already. Um, Okay. So as you know, I I tend to be like, okay, what are my avenues here? So I initially really did want to lean into the revenge porn thing because there, if there is anything in this movie that is a crime, it is, there's this moment where someone is, you know, taped having 
consensual sex, but unconsensually being taped like they in like full face. You know, it's very horrific and it's mortifying and, you know, and it is criminal. And I looked into it. And yes, there are definitely like revenge porn laws. However, I feel like I I wasn't able to come across like a specific case that felt worth sharing, you know, because that would somehow work with this. So then I was like, okay, well, let's just go location as I want to do. And I was like, Fire Island, true crime. Every single thing that came up was just this movie. And I was like, no, no, true crime on Fire Island. And I'm happy to report that it it would appear that uh, really horrific, bad crime is not common on Fire Island. Most of the things that I found are like, there's a naked drunk man sitting on my porch eating pizza. And so I need the police to come. Like, that's like the kind of crime (laughs) that happens on Fire Island, which is drunken shenanigans, not horrible, horrible crimes. So I was like, that's kind of wonderful to know that this little like safe oasis is really kind of a safe oasis. And so I, I was like, okay, I knew that I wanted the crime to be somehow related to the queer community. I was hoping to relate it to, you know, like, the Fire Island area, or at least the New York City area. So I just typed in, uh, you know, queer New York true crime. And I came across a book that came out in 2021 called Last Call. It's by Elon Green, who is an investigative journalist. And it is a book about a serial killer who terrified the gay community of Manhattan from 1991 to 1994. Now, as you know, I am a very interested in true crime gal yeah. and I'm pretty proficient in serial killers. Like I know a lot of, of, of them, you know, and about them and all yeah. that stuff. And I had never heard of this. Really? And the thing is, when this book came out in 2021, the author, I read a bunch of different interviews with him. He said, in my years of researching this, I only came across one person who was not directly connected either you know, knew the victim directly or was law enforcement that had any idea about this serial killer. Uh, why are they just it, keeping it? It just wasn't, you know, during the time. I mean, he's very, like he's said, he sets it out. Well, you know, like gay people, um, gay people were treated, you know, like pretty poorly. Their relationships with the police were not great, especially like in the 80s. This is early 90s, but they were they were just like considered to be less than victims. Therefore they were, it wasn't as talked about, but also he is fair to mention that at this time in New York city, like crime was crazy. Murder was crazy. So it's not like these were the only murders happening and people just didn't talk about it. It was also, you know, like the AIDS crisis was still happening. And so the, the loss of the men at the hands of this killer, the number of them, you know, still like, far paled in comparison to the number of, of men and women and people, you know, lost to AIDS. Um, and so he he's fair in that way. It's like, yes, there was biases that would make this less interesting for like news people to cover, but also there was a lot of other stuff going on. So he doesn't 100% say um. that bias is why we don't know about this. So let me tell you about the last call killer. All right. So We're going to start on May 5th of 1991, where a maintenance worker who was uh, working at a restaurant, you know, like a restaurant, a rest stop, not a restaurant, a maintenance worker at a rest stop um, was, you know, emptying the garbage when he noticed that the bags that he was moving out of the bins into the truck were extremely, extremely heavy. This is at a rest area in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. Now, curious by the fact that, you know, this is like a big dude, strong man, you know, works you know, physical labor for, and he was like, this is fucking heavy. (laughs) So he decides to just kind of peek inside. And when he did, he got the shock of a lifetime inside was the mutilated body of a man. Now, state police are immediately called. And while they're there at this rest stop, they get another call from a restaurant rest stop, like just, you know, a couple miles down the same Pennsylvania turnpike who had also discovered trash bags that had body parts in them. And as it turns out, these body parts at these two separate restaurants, they all belong to the same person. So police are able to determine through dental records that this man was 50 year old, um, a 50 year old banker, Peter Anderson. Now, Peter Anderson was a uh, twice married, once divorced, now separated from his second wife, father of two who had recently quietly come out as gay. 
And uh, police also learned that Peter had traveled to Manhattan to attend a political fundraiser on May 3rd. So remember, his um, body was discovered on May 5th. He had gone to Manhattan on May 3rd of 1991 to go to a political fundraiser. And there he had run into an, an old flame. So he had been in the closet for a long He was in his 50s when he quietly came out. So like his his wife he was separated from, she knew. And she had known for a while they'd been separated for a long time. Um, he was actually also uh, had HIV and was clearly like having, you know, showing the signs of his health deteriorating pretty um. rapidly. Uh, but he ran into, <clears throat> excuse me, an old flame from back in the his, you know, like his secret, one of his secret loves, which was an old flame named Tony Hoyt. And as the fundraiser was winding down, the two old friends decided that they should go for a drink, like and catch up. So uh, Peter knows just the place. They're going to go have a drink at the townhouse, which is a piano bar on East 58th Street. Now it's kind of like a she she like, you know, you dress nice, you look nice, you're a doctor, <clears throat> you're a banker, you're a lawyer, but you're also gay because it's definitely a gay establishment, yeah. but it's like a super kind of upscale, wonderful, beautiful piano bar. So that's where they decide to go. And the men are catching up, they're drinking scotch, um, listening to piano. But it was clear that even before they got there, Peter was like very drunk and this bar was known for its stiff cocktails, so he was getting uh, very, very, very drunk. Mm. And the bartender eventually cuts them off, and she says to Hoyt, like, hey, sorry, your friend has had way too much to drink. You guys, we got to go. And so they're leaving the bar, and Peter asks Hoyt, can I come back to your apartment? But the much more sober Hoyt kind of is like, no, I see where I see where you think this night is going. It's been wonderful to see you, but I'm not going to... That's that's not where the night's going. And so he lies and he's like, well, I have house guests, but let me get you a room at the Waldorf Astoria. So he books him a room and then um, puts him in a cab and uh, off they go. He gets the cab does arrive at the Waldorf Astoria. Peter gets there, but he never checks in. And his body was found two days later. Now, how Peter met his killer Nobody knows. But Hoyt's best guess, like what he thinks might have happened, is that being as intoxicated as he was, he got to the hotel, forgot that he had been cut off and told he couldn't go there anymore mm. and decided to go back to the townhouse for a last call. But that's just his best guess. and Nobody really knows. So this case goes cold. Then on July 10th, 1992, the remains of another man are discovered in garbage bags at two different rest stops in Ocean City, New Jersey. Along with the man's body parts, there was a handsaw and a briefcase belonging to the victim and also eight pairs of latex gloves. Uh, the box that the handsaw had been sold in still had a sticker, you know, like the little sticker with the price tag on it. And uh, police are able to trace that to where it was sold and it had been purchased at a CVS in Staten Island. Um, the medical examiner noted that the body parts had, even though, you know, it had obviously been dismembered, but it had been disarticulated, meaning with surgical precision, these body parts had been, so they hadn't been like no one cut through bone, like everything had been done in a way where it was like very surgical. And so police are like, okay, we're dealing with somebody who has some kind of surgical knowledge or some kind of medical knowledge. So this man uh, was identified as 57-year-old Thomas Mulcahy. He was a married father of four from Massachusetts who had traveled to Manhattan to give a presentation at the World Trade Center for work and then following um, basically his bank records to figure out where he had gone. Um, police discover that he had been at a piano bar called The Townhouse oh. the last time that he was seen alive. So although he was married and a father of four, uh, Thomas's wife, Margaret, told police that she did believe her husband was bisexual. She had found a matchbook from a gay bar in his pants the year before, and they were actually in therapy trying to deal with his infidelity, but it was all infidelity with men. Um, okay, so now police, we have two men both dismembered and left in multiple double knotted trash bags at rest stops who had both been at the same piano bar the night they basically went missing. Um, now for Mulhehe, Thomas Mulhehe, the police had actually found two partial fingerprints on one of the bags and they were like, oh, great. So they put those fingerprints into APHIS. And for those of you who don't know, APHIS is the automated fingerprint identification system. So it's like all over the country you can you can upload the fingerprints you don't have to but you can and they don't um they don't get a a hit so whoever this person is their prints are not in the APHIS system all they know uh 
for sure is that this handsaw was bought at a Staten Island CVS. Now, knowing the similarities here, obviously the potential that we're dealing with a serial killer is 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 kind of like becoming an imminent thought. And then just 10 months later, on May 10th, 1993, a man who was driving down Crow Hill, which is a single lane road that went through the forest in New Jersey, saw what he originally thought was a discarded deer carcass on the side of the road. And as he drove past, he slowed a little bit and he realized that what he was looking at was a human hand. <coughs> so the man drove home and called police. When police arrived at the scene, again, they found the remains of a man in several different double-knotted trash bags. This time, they ran the victim's fingerprints, and they did get a hit to try to identify him. And the victim was 44-year-old Anthony Marrero. And he was a sex worker who'd been busted for solicitation at Port Authority several times over the years. And uh, police get a new forensic clue here. They noticed that the bag containing Anthony's head had writing on it, and it said, uh, Made with Pride by Bob H., and Jerry H. And police learn that this is a limited edition Acme like store, like grocery store bag. Oh. That had only so it was a limited edition bag that had only been distributed to eleven different stores total, and recently, like within three days of finding oh, Anthony wow. Marrero. And it turns out that uh one of the places that were selling, one of the eleven stores that were selling or using these bags was in Staten Island in the very same area where that CVS that the saw had been purchased at was in Staten Island. They also found um, fingerprints again on this bag. The last person known to have seen Anthony was a friend and fellow sex worker who told police that Anthony said he was heading down to Greenwich Village for a date, um, but nobody could give them any more information about who that date was. All right. So pretty much there's there's not a lot here. They're trying to follow the forensic evidence. This is the early 90s, you know, so like stuff like DNA is still really new. Um, these uh, bags and bodies were very clean. They had been washed down. So to find, you know, the few little partial prints that they had was kind of miraculous. But again, they already tried and it's not in the system. So then on July 31st of 1993, Ron Calandria, who was a third generation hot dog truck vendor, pulled into his usual spot off Route 9W in like New York's Hudson Valley, which is where, you know, he would set up every day. And he immediately noticed that his garbage can was full. Now, this pissed him off yeah. because <laughs> this is that. his trash can. He pays for like the removal of the trash from the specific site. And um, he knew that the trash had been picked up the day before and that somebody must have dumped their trash in his can overnight to avoid like paying for it. But this guy was the kind of person that when that would happen, he'd go through that trash and he would find an address and he would return the trash to the front lawn of the person who yeah, had dumped it in yeah, his trash yeah. can. <laughs> so he, without even hesitating, is like, I'm opening this up to find out, you know, who did this and where they live so I can return their trash to them. And when he opened the bag, he was looking at the face of a man. So police were called and they discovered in his trash, uh, two different bags, one containing a man's head and another containing his arms. Now that same day, um, a like lost kind of attache bag briefcase had been turned into the lost and found at police. And inside that, bag was a driver's license and the face of the man in the bag was the same as the face of the man on the driver's license as the briefcase that had been turned in then nine days later a volunteer firefighter was riding his motorcycle down route 9w when he saw four large trash bags on the side of the road now everybody in this area had heard about the hot dog vendor's discovery so when he sees these bags he does he just stops and calls police he's like there are more trash bags off the side of this highway you should probably come check yeah oh god Um, And in the bags were the rest of the remains of the fourth victim of the serial killer, Michael Sakara. Now, Michael was a 56-year-old typesetter at the New York uh, Law Journal. And when police went to his apartment, the doorman said that he had, yeah, he knew Michael and he had lived there with his boyfriend until about seven months earlier. They had broken up about seven months before. So then police tracked down the boyfriend because, you know, first suspect is always the loved one. Right. They talk to him. Basically, they clear him. But they do learn from him that Michael was a creature of habit. Six nights a week, Michael went to the Five Oaks Piano Bar in Greenwich Village after work. He didn't go on Mondays, but he went every other night. And he went after work and stayed until close. So police head to Five Oaks. Now, this is what they call the Bermuda Triangle of piano bars in um, the West Village. Like, uh, 
Maurice Crisis is there, the Duplex, yeah. Five Oaks. You know, there's like a bunch of different ones. Um, we I used to go to Maurice Crisis with my brother all the time and just belt out show tunes. And I love a piano bar. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Me too. So, right, police head to the Five Oaks. And there they meet Lisa Hall, who was a singer and bartender at the establishment who knew Michael really well. And she actually gave police their first real potential tip or lead. On Thursday, July 29th of 1993, Michael had come to Five Oaks like always and sat in his seat at the end of the bar. He was kind of known as Norm from Cheers at at the Oaks and he operated as the social director. He would be introducing people to each other and entertaining them with songs or giving suggestions for the singers and piano player to play. And he was just, it was just his spot and everybody knew him there. So Lisa recalled that around 3 a.m., that same, I guess, so Thursday night now into Friday morning at 3 a.m., a man entered the mostly empty bar and walked down and walked right up and sat next to Michael. And the two men began to chat. Now, Lisa didn't recognize the guy, but she assumed that they must know each other because who sits right next to someone at an empty bar? Like, right. you would usually put like a seat between you. Um, Michael introduced this man to her as either Mike or John. She couldn't remember. She was like, it's a real, you know, like regular name, like Mark or John, and told her that he was a nurse at St. Vincent's. So Lisa helps create a composite and it was given to the media. Now, police think immediately this nurse thing must be explored because they know they're looking for someone with like surgical experience. Um, And... They took Lisa's photos, or sorry, they brought Lisa. So there's a couple things. She gives a composite. They put that out into the media. It doesn't yield many leads. However, they bring photographs. Now, being a male nurse in the early 90s, I guess there were far fewer male nurses than there are today. Much more of them were female nurses. And so they bring her photos of every male nurse at all the New York City area hospitals and have her go through them. Now, Lisa thinks that she recognizes one of the men, but his name wasn't Mark or John. And he worked at Mount Sinai, not St. Vincent's. So police are kind of like, well, no, I mean, you think maybe that's him, but that's not the name you gave us or the hospital. So we'll just keep looking. That's a frustrating thing. But that's what happened. So police then, um, specifically reach out to each individual employee at St. Vincent's and they give them Lisa's composite and the description and they ask if this could be anyone that works at this hospital. And someone's like, yes, that could be Mark Slayton. And Mark Slayton was a nurse at St. Vincent's Hospital who also happened to live in the same neighborhood in Staten Island where the CVS and the Acme bags had been sold. And so immediately they bring him in. Uh, Now, Mark has an alibi according to him, for every date that one of these men went missing and was like, you know, the time periods of their murders. So police, they get his fingerprints, but then they have to let him go. He's able to say, and I guess prove that he has these alibis. So they fingerprint him and they are forced to let him go while they wait for results. So at this point in the case, um, you know, the first body was found in 91, last one in 93. And they have formed a task force at this point because of their, the body parts were found in five different jurisdictions over three different states. And so they've created this task force with over 20, you know, officers all involved. And basically they're all just waiting for these fingerprint results positive at this point that this Mark, who was a nurse at St. Vincent's, just like the guy who had been introduced to the bartender said was going to be their guy. And as I mentioned, the media had been given the composite. So now this killer also had a name. They were calling him the last call killer because he would prey on very intoxicated men who were alone at the end of the night at these gay bars. But when the results came back, the task force was stunned. Mark Slayton was not the man that they were looking for. His fingerprints did not match and his alibis did all check out. So Basically, they have exhausted all of the physical evidence that they've been able to find in terms of their capabilities. And now the one like eyewitness who saw the guy, they found the guy. It wasn't the guy. They don't they don't know what else to do. And the case goes cold and it goes cold for six years. Oh, man. So Margaret Mulcahy, who was the wife of Thomas Mulcahy, the second man I told you about, um, she decided to take matters into her own hands after six years of like it just literally being shelved. She's like. F this. And she hired a private detective and she contacted the task force and said, if you guys aren't going to figure this out, I am. I got a private detective. We're going to go. And and basically gave him a kick in the pants. And so they decided to pull the case back out, look over what they have. 
And because the evidence had all been excellently preserved and police were aware that fingerprint technology had gotten exponentially better in the six years that had gone by, they decide to take the evidence they have, so the bags, to Canada, where a new fingerprinting technique called VMD or vacuum metal deposition is is being done on the regular. It's not being done in the States as much, but in Canada, they're doing it. Now, let me explain real quick what VMD is. Um, Basically, you coat the item of evidence. So in this case, it would be the plastic trash bags with a layer of metal inside a vacuum changer. So minuscule slivers of either gold, zinc, silver, or copper are inserted um, on like a layer of that's placed on the trash bag in this case, inserted in the VMD machine. Um, they're vaporized to cover the evidence and they reveal fingerprints. So what it does is it's able to lift latents off of materials that they didn't used to be able to get them off of by creating almost like a negative Ooh. of the fingerprint. It's very like super fancy, you know, forensic I love that. stuff going on. So when they get these results, they are actually able to get 17 like really good fingerprints off of these bags. And they compare the prints between the Mulcahy bag and the Marrero bag, and they are able to definitively say that they belong to the same person. So now it is confirmed and proven that Thomas Mulcahy and Anthony Marrero were murdered by the same person. Okay. Again, they take these now much nicer, better prints and they put them into APHIS again, and again, there is no match. But APHIS is not a requirement, right? Like, states are not required to put in their fingerprints. It's like, you know, do it if you feel like it type thing. So they actually make, like, high-resolution copies of these fingerprints, and they mail them to all 50 states, explaining um, or detailing the case and asking them if they would maybe run these through their state databases. All right. Now, one of the forensic scientists who received these prints was a a woman named Kimberly Stevens, who worked in law enforcement in Maine. And when she ran the prints through her database, she got a hit. Now, these prints that were on file in Maine's database were from a murder case from 1973. (gasps) When the body of Fred Spencer was found in the woods by two bicyclists, Fred had been beaten with a hammer, had a plastic bag placed over his head and had been wrapped in a tent and dumped in the woods. So when police interviewed Fred's college roommate, he admitted that he had killed Fred, but it was in self-defense. And depending on where you read this, um, it was either like he, Fred attacked him after he rebuffed a sexual advance or or Fred attacked him when he caught him trying to steal something. I read both accounts, but he says, I, you know, he came at me with a hammer. I got it away from him. I was just defending myself. This actually went all the way to trial. And I I suppose this roommate was very charming and believable because a jury of his peers believed his self-defense story and he was acquitted of Fred's murder. The fingerprints of the man acquitted in the murder of Fred Spencer was a gentleman named Richard Rogers, who was a 55-year-old openly gay man who worked as a pediatric nurse at Mount Sinai Hospital and had done for 22 years. Uh, Richard Rogers also lived in Staten Island. When police showed Lisa Hall, the bartender from Five Oaks, his photo, she said, yes, that's the guy. It's also the guy she had picked out when they first showed her the photos of every nurse, which is why that's frustrating. Now, Police are like, all right, we know who this is. They're kind of surveilling him. They devise a plan to go to his workplace. They tell him that he has been the victim of credit card fraud and um, bring him in like to help out with their investigation so that he agrees willingly. He goes with them. And once police have him in interrogation, they confront him with the actual reason they're there, the evidence that they have. Um, and he asks for a lawyer immediately. Lawyers up won't say a word. So police then... Um, They execute a search warrant on his apartment. And one thing they noticed was that in the apartment, it was like the cleanest apartment they'd ever seen. And even his neighbor said, like, he's the kind of neighbor everyone was shocked, right? This was a a nurse who worked with children after like babies, like after heart surgery. He was gentle and sweet. Neighbors described him as the kind of neighbor you would want. Very clean and tidy. Although he did run his vacuum cleaner a lot. Some of them said like at all times of the day, but they said that his place of work was so unbelievable or his place of his home was so clean that it was like suspicious. And also Mm. the nature of how clean um, all of the victims, you know, like the bags had been washed, the bodies had been, everything was spick and span. And so there's that already is giving them like the the heebie-jeebies. They then find sedatives 
which are used, uh, can be used just to sedate people or have been used in date rape drug, uh, as a date rape drug, but they're not the, it's not GHB. It's a different kind. And it's mm-hmm. something probably only someone who works in like hospitals and stuff would have access to because it's something you'd use for people like post-surgery to oh. sedate them for pain. Um, and it's never regularly tested for in an autopsy talk screen because like why it's a medical thing, you know, so they don't look for this. So they find that kind of a sedative. Then they find Polaroid pictures that it appears that this man took of construction workers, not wearing shirts outside of his, like uh, his condos windows. And he had drawn in like stab wounds onto these Polaroids. So like there was like red dripping blood that he had drawn onto it. So the task force decides that they're going to move forward and charge Richard Rogers with the murders of Thomas Mulcahy and Anthony Marrero because the evidence, the fingerprint evidence that they have in those cases were the strongest. They weren't able to recover the same amount of forensic evidence on the other two. Right. Um, so they are like, we will go forward. We're going to charge him for these two murders. Okay. Now, this is part of, I think, where we have to consider this is 2001. All right. So it's still, it's a different time, but we have to consider sometimes, I think, like how how police prosecute or think of crimes when the victims are queer because the prosecutor in this case offers Richard Rogers a plea deal that if he will plead guilty to both murders, he'll only have to serve 15 years. Now, luckily because Richard Rogers had already gotten away with murder once and was a cocky motherfucker, he didn't take the deal, but if he had, he would be out already. Oh my God. Um, No, he decided to go to trial and uh, he went to trial. And after four hours of jury deliberations, he was found guilty and sentenced to consecutive 30 year sentences. So Richard Rogers will be eligible for eligible, eligible (laughs) for parole in 2066 at the ripe old age of 116. So he will never see the light of day. He will never get out of jail. Now, it also turned out in their investigation into him after they had identified him that in 1988, a man who wished to remain anonymous, both in the book, he used a fake name, and then like in the police reports, went to police and told them that Richard Rogers had drugged and attacked him. He had woken up in the middle of the night, tied to Rogers' bed while he was being beaten (gasps) by Richard Rogers. He managed to escape, went to the police. Uh, Richard was charged with kidnapping and assault, was granted a bench trial, which is when the trial is only overseen by a judge and decided by a judge there's no jury and uh, apparently again what his argument was no it wasn't it wasn't what it looks like we were consenting adults and this was like our sexual play and it just got out of hand it was basically the judge the judge found him not guilty and so the records were expunged and along with the fingerprints because i guess once you're acquitted of something they have to get rid of your fingerprints which is why it's cool in maine that's not true they could have, but they didn't have to. So it's almost a fluke that an wow. acquitted, an, like a man who had been accused of murder but was acquitted, they still had them on file because they're not required to get rid of them. Um, but that's the only reason they ever caught this guy. And every police officer who spent, you know, on this task force said that they have no doubt that if, if you know, they hadn't found him, that they would still be finding bodies uh. on the side of the road. And that is a story of the last call killer who specific he was an openly gay man too. He was a gay man who was attacking. Why, Why did he do the, it? You know, the, the, one of the things that's cool about the book um that I actually didn't get to finish reading cuz I found it too late, but I'm close. I only have like a couple chapters to go. Um there there's not a lot about him because he has never once admitted guilt never ever given them a motive for why you know obviously he didn't admit guilt but if you know he was found guilty he'll never he's never given him a motive they've never been able to figure out why he did this uh the author who wrote this book requested an interview with him like over five times he refused to speak he doesn't want to speak um and i kind of like that about the book he's like it's about the men and yeah, it's about the, the, the world they were li- the, yeah the world they were living in on the cusp of of entering a world that wouldn't have been so hard to live in for them. Um, and how unfair it is that, you know, a really like, I mean, this guy could not have been more just like normal looking. It's like average brown hair, average height, just like a normal looking guy uh, that was, you know, murdering his own. Mm-hmm. A lot of people think it, it's interesting with, when we find out that he had actually been charged with murder at the age of 23 when he was a grad student and whether or not, you know, that was sexually motivated. Uh, if like before that he didn't think he was gay and then got super angry 
when the guy hit on him. And that's what led to that murder. But he was living as an openly gay man at the time of his arrest. And so that's where it gets like kind of complicated. Mm-hmm. Where it's like, were you an openly gay man, but you also you hated yourself for it? But but I don't think we need to psychologize him. He's a monster, horrible person who clearly had um, something massively wrong with him and that this this style of like, you know, murder and dismemberment was did it for him. And that's all we need to know is he's a fucked up fuck. Um, but I just couldn't believe that there was a story of like a, a serial killer with like really that you'd never gruesome, heard of gruesome details that I had never heard. I'm of. shocked too. That's what I learned this week. I can't believe that. <laughs> right. And it's just it's fascinating to me that I mean, I'm I'm sure there are many more instances of serial killers. You know, there's a problem in our country of like really only being interested when the victims are like pretty young white girls. Mm. Um, but I mean, this is just it's such a insane story of of what was happening. And just yeah. that nobody, he even said people who were gay in New York who weren't directly affected or involved and knew these people, like none of them had ever heard of it either. So bizarre. So wild. It's like a story that wasn't told. So I really do recommend Last Call by Elon Green. It was a really, really well-written, um, easy, to, you know, it's like he does such a good job of it's, he doesn't insert himself in it at all. And it really is just, he was, he said at one, like he said, you know, in interviews that he became obsessed with learning everything he could about these men whose lives were cut short, as I said before, like on the cusp of the world becoming a safer place for them. Um, Looks, sounds like a great book. I really want to read it. Yeah. And he really, so I, and I really recommend it. I've, I've, I enjoyed reading it. I felt like it gave me a lot of insight into the scene there, which, you know, I love the piano bar and I I have so many memories of like, like the first place when I visited my brother before I ever lived there, like the first place he took me out to where we went to Marie's crisis piano bar and then we went to splash like the big gay club that also opened up in 1991. I learned that. And that, so it was like one of the, it was the first, I think like openly gay themed, like giant nightclub was splash. And my brother took me there on my first trip too. And it was just, it was, it was, it was weird hearing all of these familiar places and knowing that these horrible things had happened in these, you know, yeah. these safe havens. So I was like, Oh my God, I can't believe it. Well, let's go back to fire Island. Let's go back to fire Island. <laughs> no, I'm and... just kidding. But no, thank you. Avon. That was an amazing telling. I can't, can't wait to share this with all of you. Well, at this point you've listened. Thanks for listening, everybody. Yeah. Thank you for listening. We love you, rom criminals. That's and we'll right. see you next Tuesday. Yes, we will.